Welcome back to another episode of our Six Questions podcast here at Save Our States. I'm Trent England, your host, and glad to be joined by a friend of the program. He's been here before. He is the Distinguished Fellow at Save Our States, Michael Maybach. Michael, welcome back. Well, thank you for having me, Trent. And I should tell people, we may get into this as, as we talk more, but you, you've had a distinguished career before you came to Save Our States. You were at uh, Intel for a, a very long time, building up their uh, their government affairs office, their global government affairs office. And uh, uh, from there, the uh, help me with the name. The the uh, I was president of the European American Business Council. European American Business Council, yeah. uh, obviously facilitating uh, you know business uh, activities and cooperation across the Atlantic, and uh, and from all of that understanding of uh, uh, just the the importance of governance, uh, you you joined us at Save Our States to advocate the the defense of the Electoral College. Uh, and the first question is is about that, about something that people can find on our website, saveourstates.com. Michael, you have written, I know other people I think have used this analogy as well, uh, comparing the Electoral College to the World Series. Um, what? How does that comparison work? Uh, take, take people through that. Well, um, there's been several World Series where the winning team, which is four games out of seven, doesn't perform nearly as well in terms of runs or home runs or RBIs, et cetera, et cetera. The, one of the best examples is the 1960 Pirates versus Yankees. People over 50 years old know about Bill Mazeroski's walk-off home run, which at the bottom of the ninth, uh, he hits a home run and he wins the series. That's the end of the thing. And so Pirates win four games to three. I asked the audience, does that sound fair to you? Of course, that's how we always do it. And then I say, did you know in those seven games, the Pirates had a total of 27 runs and the Yankees had 55 runs and <laughs> the Pirates had four home runs and the Yankees had 10 home runs and the batting average of the Pirates was 265 and it was 327 for the Yankees and uh, hits the Yankees had twice as many hits on and on every metric of that series. The Yankees won, except they didn't win the most games. And so I asked people, well, now does that seem fair to you? And of course, they start to think, well, since 1900, we've only had two presidents that didn't win the majority of states. Uh, that was Jimmy Carter and John F. Kennedy. And um, in the in the 2000 Bush v. Gore, although Bush got more votes, uh, Bush won 30 states and Gore won 20. And same with uh, Trump versus Hillary Clinton. He got 30 states and et cetera. So the point is, um, there are rules to getting from A to B to C in this world. And um, the World Series is sort of a good example of how people do that. Right. So I use that yeah. example for the sports fans. I, I ask uh, in the March Madness, you know, the basketball tournament every spring, is it the most points per game or is it the most games to get to the Sweet 16 and, and down to the Final Four, et cetera? And of course, it's the most games, not the most points scored. And pe people sort of instinctively understand that, ex that, you know, people can argue this team's better, that team's better, Yankees are better, whatever. 
But at the end of the day, there's a there's a set of rules and and the rules make sense in a federal republic. It makes sense to have a, a federal process to elect your uh, your your chief executive of that federal republic. People right. just seem to have maybe maybe lost that or, or you know, there are folks out there who I think want to sort of miseducate people about the nature of our of our government. I, I'm curious, Michael, question number two on our six questions podcast is you you wrote your first article defending the Electoral College in 1970. And uh, that's a while ago. Now, I mean, not, you know, not not that long ago necessarily, but that's a while back, uh, certainly before I was doing any of this. So uh, were, the, were the arguments over the Electoral College, were they different back then, you know, before 2020, before the 2000 election, going back to 1970, was was it different or did you get the same kind of, you know, sort of complaints and defenses about the Electoral College? Right. So I published my first essay as a college student, 1974, in the Peoria, okay. Peoria Journal Star, my hometown. And um, the um, as you know, in the modern age, the uh, the opponents of the Electoral College took two major runs at the Electoral College. 1970, Nixon actually endorsed a national popular vote bill to amend the Constitution in the Congress, and the House passed it. Nixon was going to sign it. And um, Gene McCarthy, who was one of the anti-war leaders in the U.S. Senate, a Democrat, led the charge against changing the Electoral College, 1970, four years later. So it was in the mix. And then I had two professors, Herbert Storing, who introduced me to the Electoral College, University of Chicago professor, and then Martin Diamond, another professor I have, uh, both of them testified in 1970 at the Senate Judiciary for the Electoral College. So I knew them both when they were doing that. I was their student. And then in 70, by, by um, uh, unfortunately, before 1977, uh, Dr. Storing passed away. I think it was 1974, uh, something like that. But uh, Martin Diamond in 1977 testified before the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee for the Electoral College and then died of a heart attack at the end of his testimony. <laughs> and he died on the in the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, room, just awful. Um, but that was 1977. The person that led the charge was Daniel Patrick Moynihan, another uh, considered liberal Democrat who stood up for it. What's changed is not the arguments on the other side, which were, were majoritarians, you know, the majority must rule, but the fact that the Democratic Party used to have people that said, my gosh, we are a nation of states and Iowa feeds, you know, the big cities and we can't neglect, you know, the 30 states that produce most of the agriculture. Today, it's it's really the entire Democratic Party. All the people that ran for president um, in the Democratic primary two years ago, other than Joe Biden, who was neutral, uh, they all now oppose the Electoral College. So the parties have become more polarized, but the arguments are pretty much nation of states versus majority rule. Hmm. That's that's uh, really interesting. I guess we've seen that in other areas where the parties have become so much more polarized yeah. than they than they used to be. And another another question, kind of drawing on your your personal history, you worked in Silicon Valley, as we mentioned, from the 1980s to the early 2000s. Uh, how how did 
that industry, the tech industry, go from being so pro-free speech, and in some ways, I I think you know, really understanding that that uh, innovation was a product of our free market, you know, rule of law based system, to today being so woke and and so apparently pro kind of you know big uh, uh, government. It's a great question. The four people that started Intel Corporation, uh, who, who I was hired by in 1983, Robert Noyce invented the silicon chip, Gordon Moore, known for Moore's Law. These were two PhD engineers. Uh, Andy Grove, employee number one after the two founders, PhD as well in chemical engineering, and Les Videz, who was also an engineer. Those were the four founders. Uh, what they loved was science. They loved engineering. They wanted one plus six to be seven and that it works. And in the factory, we can produce integrated circuits with millions of transistors and they, they all work. It's the most expensive, hardest thing to do. And when I first was hired in 83, they hired me to start their government affairs department because we had a big trade war with Japan. In those days, Japan was very close to outside trade, including our computer chips, but they were dumping their extra chips on the U.S. market. And it was I spent the first seven years at Intel just you know, prying open the Japanese market, which we finally did, which is a whole nother story. But my point is, when they first sat down with me and said, young man, we want you to start our government affairs department. And they said to me, don't become part of Washington, D.C. Speak for our technology, our employees, our customers, our products, but don't become part of the game because, because we, we have one business, which is the integrated circuits business, and we don't have a position on the Panama Canal or um, right to life versus abortion or marriage or all the things that were floating around then. Um, we, we simply want to talk about our business. And Andy Grove, our third CEO, would say to me when he came to Washington, don't put me in a meeting on any topic that I'm not three questions deep. So if a, if a senator says, well, why are you for that? And he answers and they say, why are you for that? Why are you for that? He can continue to talk about it because he really knows it. We would never be in a discussion about what do you think about um, Oh, without mentioning some of the, the things that go on today, um, you know, the possible invasion of Taiwan or or the Ukraine war or, or in those days, you know, the Panama Canal or whatever. Um, they just they thought it wasn't their place. They were engineers. They weren't engineering society. But I think um, a couple of things that happened. One of the things about technology, when I was, my first seven years, I was a caterpillar and we took a big strike when I was a, there, I started out as a foreman. And when the UAW walked out, we were able to get employees that were managers and others to run the machines because this, these were semi-skilled jobs, a lot of them, and you could replace a lot of the workers. But at a technology company, if everybody leaves, all the machines leave, which is all the brains leave, right? Because when you're designing computer chips or especially software, it's all mathematical algorithms and 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 computer aided designs, et cetera. 
And so sometimes these CEOs are playing to their employees because they're trying to keep them. Uh, they want to be popular or they want to they want to attract people. And, gee, if I took an unpopular position or I seemed uh, too conservative or or whatever the the adjective may be, maybe people won't work here. They'll leave, et cetera. We're seeing a bunch of people leave um Twitter now because Musk, Elon Musk is he's a new CEO and they don't like some of his positions. Well, in the Silicon Valley, I knew uh, Hewlett Packard, um, the founders of AMD and National Semiconductor, all these people, um, and they never would have politicized their workforce. Matter of fact, we had a political action committee and we would give money to congressmen and Senate candidates, House and Senate, no matter what their party based on their voting record. But I always said to the founders and others, we should never give money to a presidential candidate because that's a binary thing. We mm -hmm. can support four Republicans for the Senate and, and four Democrats for the Senate or whatever the mix is. But if you say to the employees, we're for um, uh, Al Gore or for George Bush, half the employees may say, oh my gosh, I work for a Democrat or Republican uh, company. And we didn't want that. So we never wanted to divide people. We sort of atomized the politics, if you will. So we we thought about that a lot. These days, <laughs> CEOs, they they make a lot of binary, you know, you're either with me or against me. I think it's just very divisive of workforces that have nothing to do with their products and services and, and their clients. But then that's a that's an opinion, and uh, you asked the question. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Michael, another place that's gotten a lot more divisive over time is higher education, colleges, universities. You give a lot of speeches for Save Our States um, on college campuses. Have you found that those audiences are becoming maybe more tolerant of conservative viewpoints than they were a few years ago? You know, I... I've probably spoken to 40 some universities over the years, and especially the last two or three years with Save Our States, uh, maybe 20 some. I spoke yesterday to students from Columbia University. What I'm finding is different than that. What I'm finding is there's very shallow roots. Um, they don't read Plato's Apology. They don't know the Federalist Papers. They don't know Tocqueville, not everybody, but um, History has become um, almost beside the point. It's really how I feel about things or what's popular today. Don't confuse me with the past because, you know, the past was, especially on the on the left, if you will, the past is so muddied with slavery and, and you know, the founders, the women didn't have the right to vote. And so one of the things I have to do when I hear these things, as I say to the students, okay, so I hear that about the founders. So in 1776, when we had a revolution, uh, women were voting in what countries in the world? I'll wait for your answer. To which they would start to laugh because th they haven't a clue. And of course, the answer is nowhere. Matter of fact, women had the right to vote in America before in England, uh, for example. And uh, then I say in 1776, we did have slaves. All 13 states had slaves, by the way. In what country were there not slaves or were not involved with the slave trade? And then they think, and all of a sudden they realize every country in the world 
throughout history, throughout the Old Testament, the Roman Empire, China today, you know, there's been slavery as long as we've had human beings. And there were slave trade routes in Africa, for example. What I try to do by asking questions rather than talking at them is to have them start to think, maybe they don't accept, but they start to think, oh my gosh, the founders have dug themselves out of a hole of tyranny and slavery everywhere for 6,000 years of recorded history. Where did we not have tyranny and slavery other than, you know, for a, a few years in Athens and then the Roman Republic, which is why downtown DC looks like Rome, because our founders thought that was the one shining place where it worked for a long time. Of course, most of the people didn't vote. It was only the the anointed citizens. But so anyway, um, yeah. what I try to do is give them things to read and ask them questions so they get a little bit of humility about how far we've come from a world. We have the oldest constitution in the world because we have the first constitution in the world. Other than, you know, the Constitution of Massachusetts is the only one older than ours, and John Adams wrote that, and it's the only one left from the 13 original constitutions, and from that model came our Constitution. So when they start to realize we have the oldest Constitution, you know, the other thing we'll point out, and you could make this question number five if you want, but one of the things I point out is we had our Constitution 1789, same year as the French Revolution. Since then, we've had 233 years of presidential elections. Since then, the French have had two Napoleons, two uh, um, sets of kings, and then five republics. They're on their fifth constitution. So we're on the, the constitution of 1789. They're on a 67-year-old constitution. So <laughs> so um, they had a constitution in 1789. It fell apart almost immediately. And uh, so what I try to do is have them appreciate what they've inherited. So I say that you can resent or you can be grateful and conservatives are grateful. Michael, uh, I, I, I'm going to I'm just going to let that be a kind of a long, long answer to the question for which is, which is a good answer. And, and uh, but I do want you to elaborate on one thing I know you mentioned in your your speeches on campus uh, that relates to what you were just talking about, uh, the, the death of Socrates, which a lot of people, I guess, nowadays haven't heard of. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, but how does that story relate to defending the Electoral College against yeah. this majoritarian impulse? It's a great question. So the first slide I show, I use PowerPoint slides. The reason I use slides is I hear and I forget, I see and I remember, right? And we so we want them to use both senses. Um, the first slide I show is the painting by David that he painted in Paris of Socrates taking the hemlock and you have Plato at his knee and then other uh, students of Socrates in the Agora there where he took the hemlock. I was, I was just there about a week ago. <laughs> yes, I heard. And wonderful, everyone should go and everyone should read Plato's Apology. But um, uh, the, um, the painting was painted in 1787 the summer the constitution was being written. Isn't that interesting? But that's a side note. I asked the students or the Rotary Club, what is going on? 
and two thirds don't know. But somebody will say, that's Socrates and he's gonna drink the poison, the hemlock. And I say, oh, I see. So what's the story? The story is an elected assembly. So it's a democratic body by a majority vote voted to kill the old man for asking questions of the youth. Raise your hand if you think major, minority rights are important, free speech. Everybody, and I say, raise your hand if majorities can become tyrannical. Everybody raises their hand. I say, good, you agree with the founders. They were focused on liberty first and curbing majority tyranny to have liberty. That's the whole idea of the Constitution. And on Federalist 84, Hamilton writes, the entire Constitution is a Bill of Rights, right? Mm -hmm. And so by, by showing them that, uh, I say to them, to understand the founders, you have to understand they believe man's nature is broken, always has been, always will. If you don't think our nature is broken, if you think it's perfectible, you will not understand the rest of this speech. You will not understand the Constitution. Uh, Madison writes in Federalist 51, if men were angels, we wouldn't need this Constitution. Right. And so um, the, the founders were very clear about the problem. I'll see sometimes uh, a doubt in the eyes of some students. And so I'll say, now, young man or young lady, do you like Shakespeare? And they will say, well, yes. I said, well, now, what can you learn from Shakespeare? He died 600 years ago. I mean, everything has changed. I mean, there was no Internet. There was no there was no. Uh, TikTok, I mean, what can you learn from this guy? And they say, no, it's wonderful. You know, King Lear or, or um, you know, uh, Love, Labor, and Loss, whatever. Yeah. All these life lessons. And I say, if you think you can learn something from somebody 600 years ago, how about 233 years ago? Can you learn something from them? So what I try to do by asking questions and showing the picture of Socrates is really to have them understand that life is is a self-government is a completely difficult plant to grow and to remain uh, uh, robust and vibrant with all the storms of history. Speaking with Michael Maybach here on our Six Questions podcast, our final question, Michael, is uh, bringing us back to uh, to modern events. Uh, we have a new uh, a new Speaker of the House. In Washington, D.C., there were people who were very frustrated that a minority group of holdouts was able to influence that process to force concessions. What what do you make of all that? Was it, uh, you know, was it a, a does it sort of condemn the process in Congress? Does it show how things work? What, what do you think? It's a very timely question. And um, I've been sort of amused and also saddened really by a lot of the reaction, especially in the news media, the mainstream media, that isn't this terrible, it took 15 ballots. So I, so this came up last night when I was speaking to these Columbia students. So I said to them, now in the last two years, how many prime ministers has Israel had? Well, they have 120 members of their Knesset, their parliament, 10 parties. And in, in two years, they have five different speakers, if you will, prime ministers. And in the last four months, we've had three British prime ministers. 
right? And in the last 12 months, we've had two Italian prime ministers. The point is, the average European republic has nine parties. And within usually three years, their coalitions, because they're always partly coalitions, fall apart. The fact that we um, have a November election every two years and everybody assumes we know exactly which party is going to elect the speaker. That's with 300 million people. This is a luxury. If we had eight parties, uh, we could be there for a month or two. Uh, and then the speaker would change every every time there's a major issue and the parties fall apart. America would be almost ungovernable with eight parties like they have, let's say, in Spain. Spain has 40 yeah. million people and they've got eight parties. And and we see so many folks on, you know, particularly on the political left. And it's certainly not everybody. There, there are a lot of folks I talk to who are on the left who I disagree with on a lot of policy issues, but they do understand at this point. But there, there's a there's also a big group of folks out there predominantly on the left who they think that that's some sort of triumph of democracy that they have these multi-party systems where there's never there's never a majority other than the majority that's cobbled together in a back room you know is and as you point out Michael very temporarily very unstable yeah. often produces gridlock these people hate gridlock in Washington DC they hate the fact that minorities are able to slow things down or stop certain things from happening and then they they worship these systems from other countries i think just because they're ignorant enough about those systems that they don't understand the ways in which they don't work uh, which are at least comparable to, to you know, to the problems yeah. that we face here, in many ways worse. So, unfortunately, <clears throat> you know, we used to have a lot of agreement on 80% of American politics or 70 or whatever, but we're highly polarized. One of the problems, I think, with the left is because they've they've decided that every issue is a moral issue, and we can, we, another discussion, we could talk about that, They've, they've decided that we have to keep changing our processes until we guarantee that we always win. <laughs> yeah. So now it's ranked choice voting because when there's just two candidates, a Republican and Democrat, gee, we just lost the House of Representatives. We better change the system rather than change our policies. So while we should have debates about what's popular with the voters, too many people now are talking about how do I just rig the system in, until it's all, you know, we we have, you know, non-citizens vote or we have um, uh, drop boxes for ballots with no supervision. I mean, when did we start that? I mean, because of COVID. So um, changing you, the rules. Rather and, and, than you know, I, I'm sorry. I just and I, ironically, you know, sometimes I mean, I, I remember back in 90. Two, nine, I guess uh, this must have been 93 when it was motor voter. You remember that when that was the big issue for the left and Bill Clinton won. Democrats had a great election year in 1992 it was the year of the womanizer or the year of the woman. And uh, and so in 93, they got motor voter. It was going to make it so that we would get all these people registered to vote when they renewed their driver's licenses right. or when they got them for the first time. You get all these young people to vote. And the Democrats were just sure 
that they were changing the rules such that they would do do better in elections. They had a great election in 92, put this into effect in 93 and got wiped out in 94. And some of that actually was because it just turned out that, I mean, there are many more factors than this, but it just turned out that actually a lot of people who weren't registered to vote were conservative Christian yeah. Republicans who, uh, you know, wind up wound up registered through motor voter and right. turned out in 94. I, I just think it's it's funny for the when you see the left doing this, because they're so uh, I mean, in, in some ways, progressivism is inherently, I think, uh, very elitist. And they they have this view that, uh, you know, surely they know what will happen and they forget, you know, what conservatives know instinctively, which is there are always unintended consequences to the, the especially these kind of changes. Right. And uh, interestingly, because motor voter of citizens didn't work out so well, over 20 uh, Democratic states now give driver's license to illegals. Mm-hmm in yeah. order to muddy the waters of who can vote, right? So it's another process. So I, the, the bottom line of this discussion is you can either change minds or you can change the rules. And yeah. I think what people ought to focus on is how do we change minds, either my mind or your mind, or we change policies, or we can just say, well, I'm not going to change my ideas. I'm just going to rig the the results until I guarantee that my ideas will always win. It's sort of a... Um, a tyrannical mindset of I have to win rather than let's debate until we come up with a good answer for this society, which is what we used to call compromise, right? The last thing I want to say is um, I I had the honor of knowing Russell Kirk, who's a wonderful American political philosopher, and he has this phrase, ordered liberty. And so when the you mentioned some people on the left, they really like to keep changing the rules and we like it, everything messy. He would say the whole balance of a successful republic is you have order through the constitution and then you have free people that within that order operate. But if you keep changing the rules, you'll you'll create disorder because mm-hmm. no one will even feel that it's a fair system anymore because, because the rules keep uh, moving. And um, uh, this is part of what we've debated ever since COVID is, you know, uh, we used to have election day. Now we have election season. We used to have politicians that won your vote. Now politicians hire people to collect your votes door to door, but only the people they want to collect from. That's a very different republic than an ordered liberty where citizens actually make their decisions and actually show up at the polls on the same day because that's when the republic speaks uh, with one voice of what they want to do versus I voted in September and now I found out that I don't want to vote for them anymore. So these rule changes are very, um, uh, they, they breed cynicism and confusion, complexity, and, and people trust so little in our institutions and only undermines institutions when we should be having ordered liberty. Yeah. Michael Maybach, Distinguished Fellow at Save Our States. Thank you so much for being a guest again on Six Questions. Thank you. Thanks to all of you for watching or listening our program. Uh, I hope you had a wonderful Christmas holiday and uh, are having a happy new year. We're glad to be back with you. 
And we will uh, continue to be back uh, with new episodes of Six Questions as we uh, get into 2023. It's going to be a busy year. Lots of uh, state legislative fights, I think, over uh, the Electoral College. Hopefully, we're going to see some state legislatures pushing good laws or resolutions to protect the Electoral College. Certainly, we're going to see a tax on it by the National Popular Vote Campaign. We will keep you informed about all of that at SaveOurStates.com and on our social media. You can find us on Twitter at SaveOurStates. You can find us on Facebook. Just search for Save Our States there. And we would love to be connected with you. We would love for you to be reaching out and connecting with your state legislators and letting them know what you think about the importance of the Electoral College, the importance of the issues that Michael and I have talked about here today. And uh, please, you know, let us know if uh, if you have thoughts, if you think, see things going on in your state uh, where we can partner together and defend the, this ordered liberty, this republic uh, that we have. As Benjamin Franklin said, our government is a republic if we can keep it. Uh, until next time, I'm Trent England for Save Our States.